Hello, everyone. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 36. I'm Scott Hewlett. Quite contrary to what extreme positive vibe motivational social media posts would have you believe, you can't do anything you set your mind to. We are complex, we vary, and we all have limitations. We all don't have the time, finances, opportunities, or what it takes to be a nine-time Olympic champion, a legendary composer, or a groundbreaking medical researcher. However, there are many things that we disqualify ourselves from before we even set our foot out the door. We may not have all the options, but there are options well within our grasp if we would only choose to explore them. Those are where the growth and inspiration live. My guest this episode, in the face of uncertainty and social norms, chooses to stride it upwards and discover what is possible for her, and helping break trail for others to consider. Here's my chat with Katrina Moore. Hi, Scott. Hey, Katrina. How was your day? It was good. We were doing our P130 refresher for Wildland with all the seasonals, and yeah, it's feeling good to like get all the minimum requirements done, because we're going out to a burn this weekend, and everything's just starting really soon this year. You want to get started? Yeah. Why don't you start by telling me where you originally grew up and tell me a bit about your family and your upbringing. So originally I'm from Boulder, Colorado, born and raised where if you've been to Boulder, a lot of people think that's crazy because it's such a huge populated area now. When I grew up there in the 80s, it was just more subdued. There wasn't a huge sprawl the way it is now. It felt like a really small town. So I feel like I had a good upbringing in that way where We just had wide open spaces and just neighborhood kids being latchkey, (laughs) running around after school. And I just got to bike home and everything. And so, yeah, it did feel like a different kind of scene than it is now that what most people think of Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, just have like great friends I grew up with since like elementary school that I still keep in touch with. So I just feel really lucky to have had that experience and like stay rooted in a place for so long. Because my parents had been there since the 70s. So it's like they had strong roots, the house they bought. And they'd had for 40 years when they just sold it a few years ago. So it's pretty incredible. I think that's kind of an uncommon upbringing. Your dad actually had two jobs. They had the liquor store and he did something completely different on the side. Yeah. So my parents owned the liquor store about the time I was born in 85. It was a wine merchant, so more wine-oriented than just liquor, I guess. And then my dad, when I was a kid, he was a computer scientist, like computer programmer up at NCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And so as a kid, that sounded really cool. He would like fly around in small planes and like study hail and like do all these kind of like outrageous jobs. But also computers were the size of rooms when he was starting. And so it's just like a whole new thing. And I remember when we were in high school, we got one of the first computers and the dial-up internet and everything. And that was seemed so cool. And now, hilariously, my dad is like one of the worst. Like he's the worst with his phone. And he, <laughs> it's, 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 so, it's so funny to me. He just reached his limit and decided to stop. <laughs> yep. He like started it, pioneered it, and then just gave yeah, up. And I'm out. <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny. He'll die. Yeah, It's probably a good thing, though. It's not so great to be super connected all the time now. It's better to unplug. And he just got out when getting was good. Yeah, totally. I didn't think about it that way. But yeah, he's like one of the biggest pioneers of unplugging. And so I think that is very fitting. He loves that the technology is out there and it's being used for great things. He helped pioneer like Doppler radar software and stuff like that. So he's like very passionate about weather. But I just remember him trying to like shut off texts when they came out and he just like never wanted them. (laughs) them to come through on his phone. (laughs) He's going to be embarrassed when he hears this, but it's true and it's great. So yeah. (laughs) And you guys did traffic control too? 
Yeah. And so in addition, he basically did 20 years there and decided he didn't really want to work there anymore. No one above him had a job that he wanted. So he quit, I think, also to help us. My mom at that point was then studying to pass her master sommelier, which is the fancy wine test. So she was to pass multiple certification levels. And that's another story. But I think he took a bigger step into taking care of my brother and I. So my mom had time to do that and to focus her energy on studying and then passing those classes that she needed to start and then passing the certifications. Part of that was she had to work at a restaurant in the nighttime, like a fancy restaurant, so she could be a sommelier, so she could get that experience to pass. So I think my dad was taking care of us a lot just so he could let my mom do that. So in the meantime, he had his barricade business, and that was born out of, he was a huge runner, like we always did running races as kids. He's run so many marathons and was really active in a running club called the Boulder Roadrunners. And they were having such a hard time getting these giant barricade companies to show up and then put barricades out for small races. And so my dad thought, how hard can this be? I can probably just do this myself. So he just researched it and then started a company and did all the barricades for races with the club and then just a lot of events in Boulder. And so then he made us the <laughs> default worker bees and we would carry cones around and like help him <laughs> set up cones and break down barricades and go pick them up in Denver and do all the things and spray paint like all the cones with the logos. And it's pretty unconventional, but it was definitely fun to be part of all those special events and just feel like part of the community in like a really random way. Nice. Were you into sports other than running? Yeah, I played soccer competitively, I guess, since I was in kindergarten and I was on a club league, so we would travel. And then I also ran cross country and track in high school, obviously, because my dad was such a huge runner and that was like a really important thing that he thought we should do. My brother and I both did. So I really enjoyed being on teams and doing that. I was never an amazing runner or soccer player, but I really liked being on those teams and having that as a huge part of my life. Was school a pretty good experience? Yeah. I feel really lucky, I guess, in my upbringing and my high school experience. Like I feel like a lot of people I talk to now as adults or even in college just had these horrible experiences and just felt really bullied or alienated. And I just felt like I had a really stable home. And so I never had issues there. And I'd grown up with all these friends. So it's not like I was moving all the time and just always had a really stable network of people. And I'm not like a super social person. I'm more introverted by nature. But I always just really got along with different types of people. And especially growing up, I was a tomboy and most of my friends were guys. And I just feel like uh, stereotype or not, like most guys are a little bit less dramatic or they just want to keep their friends and not have this harsh relationships the way that female friendships can be. So I just really enjoyed that about my guy friends and just them being there for me and just being a really steadying force. So just really positive experiences and good memories overall. Do you recall any strong mentors? Yeah. I talked about my mother a little bit, but yeah, my mom, just knowing what she has achieved in her career, she was the co-owner with my dad and another couple of that wine store. And then she didn't go to college or anything. She was always interested in wine. And so when she had the opportunity, she started working at the store and then they bought it with that other couple. And then she started studying to pass this master sommelier certification. And at the time that she passed in 95, she was only the second woman in the U.S. and the third in the world to do so. Wow. And I was there with her when she passed in Europe. And just remember looking around the room as a 10-year-old and just seeing she was one of the only women in the room. Even as a kid, I think I realized what a huge accomplishment that was. Even now, there's only, I think, 270 in the entire world and only 30 of them are female. So it's still really crazy to me that even 20 years later, that's still the case. So it's just really impressive of what she's done in that field and still continues to do as a wine mentor. 
Tell me about Meg Sandrock. So Mike was a huge family friend. He was one of the runners that my dad always ran with in his group. And without being kind to Mike, like if you saw him, he looks like a homeless person. He's always just kind of like dressed in whatever he has. His truck looks like it's always on the verge of breaking down. And he always has bags and bags of shoes because he has this charity where he takes running shoes and other kinds of athletic shoes and then brings them to third world countries and gives them to kids who don't have shoes and so that they can run or just have basic footwear. And so he's just one of the kindest hearted people I've ever met. So growing up, I really wanted to be a magazine journalist. And he wrote for the local newspaper. He's written tons of books. And he helped me get writing assignments. I'm a 16-year-old, and he's getting me assignments to write for the newspaper, which is crazy to me in retrospect that they let that happen. Sure, let's give this kid like access to these races and like interview all these elite athletes, and she can be the correspondent for the U.S. cross-country championship. It blows my mind now thinking about it. And so Mike just facilitated that. He was always just like, if you want to do this, like there's a way. Yeah, he just was a great mentor to me and was always just super encouraging. And any questions I had, he was always there for me and still continues to be there. I love going home to Boulder and running with him and just catching up with him. And I guess going back to him kind of looking like (laughs) a homeless hobo, like he just lived a really simple life and the things that were important to him took center stage. And he was always traveling and just doing these really impressive things and just living kind of like a modern day Jack Kerouac. And I just found that really inspirational even as a child. And just that's kind of how I wanted my life to look like as an adult, following your passions and didn't matter what you looked like or (laughs) what your car looked like. You could just make it happen. (laughs) So on your way to finding what your passion was, what other jobs did you do before the fire service? So as soon as I was of age, then I was certified as a flagger in the state of Colorado and a traffic control technician so I could set up and break down barricade events. So I guess that was probably one of the first ones. And then in the liquor store, we would help my mom. We could stock the soft drinks, help her with inventory or setting up the newsletter, putting stamps (laughs) on so many letters and stuff before it was all automated. And then because of my mom's work in wine, she worked in a lot of restaurants as the wine list curator. So I would go with her after school and basically just like harass the kitchen staff while she was working in the off hours of like three to five with the restaurant managers getting their wine list. So I've always wanted to cook and I was really interested in pastries and baking. So since I was 14, I pretty much have worked in restaurants as a hostess, back server, and then on into serving and prep cooking and being a pastry chef. I did that until I started fire. And then in between there, I worked a year in Australia as a cellar hand at a winery, freelance writing. I've nannied and interior painting and just a lot of really random odd jobs. I wouldn't say I have a lot of skills. I just say (laughs) I've done a lot of things. (laughs) How did the Australia opportunity come up? So with wine, my mom she gave me a list of all of her contacts in Australia for wineries. And then I just cold called, emailed them (laughs) out of the blue and just was like, I want to get a work visa and come work at your winery. And two out of maybe 30 emails I sent, they wrote back. It was a medium-sized winery in South Australia in the Barossa Valley. I got to work there for about three to four months during harvest in the cellar hand. And it felt like a family immediately. Being in a winery that size, you get to do a lot of different jobs. It wasn't a big production one away. A lot of the visa people who go over there for seller hands do. So yeah, that was such a great experience and really glad that I had time in my life to be able to go do that, pick up and move and have that time in Australia. Were you close to the coast? Um, 
South Australia and Adelaide is like reasonably close to the coast. So yeah, afterward, I actually went over with my boyfriend at the time and we both got jobs there. I was able to get him a job after I expressed interest. So after we worked at the winery and made money, we bought a station wagon and then drove around Australia for six months with our quickly dwindling money. Yeah, just had a great time down on the Melbourne coast. And we went up through the center of Australia to the North End and all down the Gold Coast. So yeah, it was rad. Did you surf? No, I did not surf at that time, but we did quite a bit of backpacking (laughs) and just general living out of car adventuring. Every national park we could have gone to, we stopped at. I mean, it's kind of limiting in Australia with a station wagon. You really need a four-wheel drive, I think, to see it super well. But yeah, at the time, it was <laughs> it was the best we could do. And I think we did pretty well with what we had. What was your first exposure to the fire service? My very first memory of firefighters, I guess. My dad is from Rye, New York, which is a pretty small town on the outskirts of New York City. About an hour, I guess, not on the outskirts. But when I was eight or nine... We went back to his hometown just so he could have me visit some relatives. And then his best friend growing up, he became the fire chief of Rye. Jimmy Diani is like a classic New York guy. He has a crazy accent and he's a super imposing six foot tall man. And just remember going to the fire station and meeting them and everyone looked and talked and acted like Jimmy. And in my mind, it was just, that's what a firefighter is. That's what structured firefighters are all like. (laughs) At what point did you decide to become a firefighter? Around my mid-20s, I was getting tired of being in restaurants. I knew I didn't want to do magazine journalism anymore. I guess it's one of those things where you go to school and study for everything. I went to the University of Kansas and got my degree in magazine journalism and everything. And then I had an internship right out of college at a publication called Alpinist at the time. It was based in Jackson, Wyoming. So I'm living in this amazing mountain town. I loved all my coworkers and I loved what I was writing about because I was like a budding rock climber. But then I'd never had a desk job before. I'd always worked in restaurants, like on my feet or being outside with my dad doing barricades. And it was just a huge shock to my system, I guess. I just never really thought about (laughs) that aspect of of writing, (laughs) that I would be sitting at a desk for hours on end, (laughs) interviewing people and then writing at a computer. (laughs) So naive, I suppose. But yeah, so I quickly realized that wasn't going to be the career for me. And yeah, restaurants, it was just frustrating to be in the kitchen. I loved cooking and I loved baking and doing all that. But I guess it's so frustrating in America having the tip industry, whereas if you're in the front of the house, you can make tons of money at nice restaurants. You can make 200 to $500 a night. But in the back of the house at the restaurant, I would work the same hours and it would be super busy and I'd make $14, $15 an hour. So that was just hard to sustain, especially trying to live in expensive mountain towns like Jackson, Wyoming. So just having kind of a crisis of what I wanted to do. And then my boyfriend at the time who I met, he was a hotshot firefighter. And then one of my good friends from college was also a hotshot. I was just so intrigued by what they did, cutting down trees of the woods and running around and being off trail. And just their job just sounded amazing to me. They had super busy summers. They made tons of money in six months. And then they just took winters off and did what they wanted to. And that was really appealing to me. And so they helped me apply. And they were my guiding lights and spirit guides, I guess, for the very nebulous U.S. Forest Service job application (laughs) process. They took me through step-by-step of what boxes I needed to check and what I qualified for and what I didn't as far as entry-level positions. At that time, you could only apply to certain places out of each job announcement. So I applied to every single entry-level position I could. I think it was 50 or more places. It was a ton. And then I only got two callbacks out of all those 50. But I wasn't upset about it because 
I had zero experience. I had literally nothing to say. I know anything about fire. I didn't even have beginning firefighting quals. Like I didn't have a red card. I'd never been to any fire schools. So two places called me. One promptly just wrote me off. And then the other place, he hired me. I found out later that I had written on my application my hobbies and that I'd gone on multiple backpacking trips, was comfortable in the woods, hiking and just being outside. And so in his mind, I think he didn't have a lot of other candidates because it was kind of a middle of nowhere rural place in Northern California for the BLM. And so he thought that if I liked being in the woods, he could teach me fire. And that's the only reason he hired me. (laughs) (laughs) So super lucky. (laughs) And what was that training recruit experience like? For Wildland, it was a good experience. Since I had zero fire classes, me and one other new recruit, they basically put on fire school for us and like gave us all of our entry-level fire classes and then did a field day for us in the pack test, of course. I was on a 10-person fuels crew in Northern California in Alturas, and it was middle of nowhere, sage field, I guess. We were in two trailers, so that was just really interesting place to start, but My captain was awesome. He always got me everything I needed. He'd always just made me feel really welcome because it was me and then one other girl who started. She didn't pass the pack test. She was not hired because that's a condition of hire. So it was just me and then these nine other guys on my fuels crew. And then we would join up with a neighboring fuels crew that was across a pass in the neighboring town and form like a 20-person IA hand crew. It's unusual now looking back on it because usually you are on a crew where it's thrown together multiple different people or you're on an engine. It's really rare unless you're on a hotshot crew to be with the same people working all the time. So it was a great experience. The guys held me to a really high standard. And so at the time, I felt like they were being harsh on me or making me do more than they normally would with other people. But I think looking back on it, they just saw potential in me and they just wanted to teach me and they just really took care of me. And so I guess I have a great feeling of luck and can't believe that that's how my first season ended up to just find this great crew who really set me up for success. We were a super regimented crew because we worked together all the time. So in a way it was kind of run like a hotshot crew because getting out of the truck, you had the same tool every time you knew if you had to take a gas or an oil, if you were helping swamp, it was super, super specific to a degree that I haven't really experienced on a lot of other crews. And so I think that was a great first year being part of a well-oiled machine. Yeah, it was great training experience. You had a busy first fire season. Yes. (laughs) It was the same thing. Looking back on it, I had no idea at the time how busy it was. We had in the high 40s of paid straight days. So we literally went on two-week roll, had two paid days off, went right back out. California at that time, that was 2012. It was one of the busiest seasons that they had had in that region. Like obviously now it's been greatly eclipsed. Last year there was a million acre fire in, (laughs) in California, but at the time it was super busy and everyone was commenting on how lucky I was to see so much fire for my first season. When did you decide to add instructor firefighting? So after my first wildland year, I was just so pumped up on fire. I just thought it was the coolest job. I just loved everything about it. And maybe in a way was a little bit overconfident in my fire knowledge, I would say, looking back on it. So I was just so excited to join the volunteer fire department. It was something I had heard about that people were doing in their own hometowns. A lot of the guys I worked with in California, they were on their volunteer fire department there. So I just thought that would be something I might want to do was super lucky in another way where I moved to Winter Park, Colorado, which is over the hill about an hour and a half from my parents. I was just glad to be close to them and be in another mountain town. 
I literally walked in with my application and they told me they were starting a rookie training academy that next night, which was crazy. And so they did a quick interview with me, jump right in, see what happens. It was a four month academy to get your firefighter one and then your hazmat ops qualifications. And so I literally jumped in the next day. We had training every single Wednesday night and every other day, Saturday doing drills, but we always showed up every Saturday, just catch up on stuff and repeat drills. I don't remember exactly how many people were in the training class, but there was at least 20. And it was from different departments in that valley. The Fraser Valley, there's four or five different towns that had volunteer departments. They just kind of threw us all together in a rookie class. And that was my experience. I just remember it being super intense, having to do that twice a week, being thrown into this completely other world. I just had no idea. From Wildland, I thought a lot of things would translate. But with structure, you're learning about building construction, and obviously SCBAs, and how to manage air, and how to open doors, lockpicking. All of it was just crazy to me. I just couldn't imagine how many different skills came together to make a good structure firefighter. So that was just really lucky to be able to jump right into that academy, pass my JPRs and pass the tests, and then I had my qualifications for structure, and then was part of the volunteer department. What was your first house fire like compared to wildland firefighting? Uh, (laughs) my first house fire was, I guess to say, I really appreciated all the training we did. We had a burn tower. We did tons of drills. I feel just blown away talking to other people with how their volunteer departments were. I can't believe the level of training we got. Like they were killer. All of our training officers came from larger departments and really, really instilled in us, even though we were a small town, how important these things were. So I just want to say off the bat, like I felt like I was trained well, but then our first house fire was actually in the middle of our yearly wildland fire drill. So we had every single wildland apparatus torn apart. There's hose lays everywhere. We're pumping water and people are digging line. And then a call comes in six in the evening for a house fire with flames showing. So we all knew it was like a real house fire. It wasn't like some nonsense smoke alarm or anything. So everyone's (laughs) jumping out of their wildland stuff, throwing stuff off, jumping in their bunker gear. And then we get to the house fire and just this whole side of the upper bedroom was black smoke rolling out. And me and this other probie, who I literally just met in the truck on the way over, we're tasked with grabbing a hose line and making entry and be the first one in with water. So we make entry and get up there. Bobby is so fire up. Hard to explain the building, but you basically walk in and there was a staircase against one side and then it led to a little balcony. So it's like a really open area. It wasn't a closed off staircase. You could see the upper bedroom and the upper balcony. I get Bobby turned around. I couldn't believe he missed the staircase. It was just so obvious to me. <laughs> so I'm like tapping him. And I guess also understand like I'm five feet tall and Bobby is six, six. So we made like a really funny pairing, I'm sure for anyone watching <laughs> us making <laughs> entry with this hose line. So we make it up the stairs and we knock down the fire, do our work. And then we're coming back down to like, go get a tick or something else. And another company, the neighboring town had come up and they're pulling ceiling next to the bedroom, just trying to check for hot spots. And they pulled this really big chunk and it must have vibrated loose. There was a six point elk mount that was just lined up with some other animal mounts on the balcony. And I was right underneath it and Bobby saw it and it came right for me and he pushed me out of the way onto this couch and it crashed onto the floor. It broke off a tine. It was crazy. Like a movie moment. Yeah, it was. It was a weird day. Yeah, people's houses freak me out. You just never know what's in there or how well it's attached to the wall, I guess. So you would say being in a structure freaks you a bit more than being in the forest. You find the forest more predictable? Yeah. 
I would say so. Granted, I've run into some weed grow operations or meth trailers in the forest, but overall, I just felt like my time and structure when you go into people's houses, there could be anything in there. People could have paint cans stacked in their entryway or propane tanks. Who knows? And I guess that was always really unnerving to me. (laughs) Whereas when I'm outside in the forest, I pretty much know what's going to happen. It's a little more predictable and not as random chance as how well people have done their house or just what's in there that's going to booby trap you. And how long did you stay with that department? I was there for six years until my husband and I moved to Idaho, where I am now, from a different wildland job. So I was with the department the whole time I was in Winter Park. I just loved being part of the community and really felt like I learned skills I never would have learned anywhere else. And like I mentioned, the level of training is just like above and beyond. When we would do trainings at other houses or if we would go to different towns in our valley and see what they had to work with, I just couldn't believe the level of training we had and everything they put on for us. And It did feel like a family because it was a pretty small town. And it's not like you never met people. We always went to trainings every other Tuesday of each month. And then we had tons of calls. It was people in the community I never would have met any other way. And I felt really grateful to have those relationships, be able to go on calls and feel like I really was able to make a difference in the community. Are you still volunteering on top of Wildland? No, unfortunately, I did try and get on with the department here and I made it through my interviews and I went on tons of ride-alongs with them and then COVID happened and they've been pretty shut down. It's crazy to think that none of us thought it would be that long. I just remember talking to them last year and they're like, we can't do ride-alongs anymore. We can't have people in the department who don't work here coming in or even dropping by. And that's been over a year. And so I touched base with them over the winter and they just kept saying, it's just not time yet. And so now this month, just retouched base and it sounds like they're going to open it back up to ride-alongs, but now I'm in the throes of wildland again. So I don't know if it'll happen this year, but hopefully this winter I can get on with them and continue to volunteer because I do really miss it. It's part of my life that it's strange not having a pager and knowing what's going on (laughs) in the community right now. What about physical and mental health struggles? How have you dealt with them and have you seen other people struggle? Yeah, physically and mentally, I talked about how I felt like my crew members and my first crew in California maybe held me to a higher standard than I would hold myself. That was great in that they saw more potential in me than I saw in myself. And I don't know if I was actively trying to get out from under doing tasks or carrying a lot of weight, but I just didn't think I had it in me. And so I remember the very first wildfire I was on, and it was an entire subdivision had burned to the ground within hours. People had, finding out later, people had like five minutes to grab stuff and get out and evacuate. We showed up the next morning. There's been very few fires since then that I've seen this level of destruction in houses where it's just chimney standing and burned out shells of vehicles, kind of a rural area. So there was horses that someone had just set free that were running around all dehydrated and they were super panicked and retardant everywhere. Like it was a really intense thing to have as a first fire and not know how rare that was or just what that was like to be thrown into. And so no one died, but it was definitely humbling to see that destruction and just know that people had no time to really do anything or save anything. So we were mopping up and then with Wildland, we have bladder bags. So they hold five gallons of water. They're 45 pounds when they're fully loaded on top of your line gear pack, which is 25, 35, depending on what you're carrying. So I remember them just telling me like, hey, grab this and hike up this hill, like to this other area and meet up with the rest of the squad. And I just thought they're joking with me. I weigh 110 pounds. I can't carry that much weight. That's crazy. (laughs) And they were just like, you can just walk. Okay. They're like, we're not going to go super fast, but this is what you need to do. This is part of the job. 
remember how heavy it seemed and then just walking and walking and taking a few more steps and more and then just didn't want to disappoint them or didn't want to lose my job because I had seen how that other girl had gotten not fired but basically told her she couldn't do it because she didn't pass the physical test so I just didn't want to be that person and I knew I could do it I guess once I started I just remember that moment of once I got up there and I'd carried that all the way up there that if someone would have asked me if I could have done that I would have told them no and then I did it and I just remember breaking that barrier physically and mentally that was a really empowering cool moment and it was cool I think to see the other guys around me they saw that in me they knew I was capable and they weren't going to let me excuse being small that was huge. And like I said, I was the only female then on that 20-person crew for that whole summer. And they never let me get away with anything. I was just another crew member. And I think at the time, I did feel like that was unfair. Or like, oh, I'm so much smaller. Why can't the six foot seven guy carry that? But I think it was a great lesson that they instilled in me. And if you're going to be a crew member, maybe you can't carry it as far as him or as fast, but I can still do it. And that's still important to do and be part of the team. And yeah, I'm glad they didn't let me get away with it. And I think that's something now where I think of as being a woman in the fire service of sometimes guys think of it as chivalry and they want to volunteer to carry the hard things for other women or for smaller people just because they think they're doing them a solid, but it's really not. It's a detriment to them. It's not treating them the same as any other crew member. And so I'm really glad that I wasn't even looking for that lesson and I was letting myself be a gender stereotype by expecting them to do this hard work for me. And so I'm glad they didn't let me get away with that and that they taught me that that's what I had to do. Those were the standards if I wanted to do the job. It's cool of you to frame it that way because I would resonate with that. It's just the way I was brought up. It's just in you. It's just what you do. It's your manners. And then trying to get yourself out of that and get in this fire crew mode. Yeah, totally. And I like to remind the guys when I see them do that with other women of, you may think of it as chivalry, but it's an underlying message of you're not capable enough and I'm going to do this for you. It isn't meant to. Some guys don't mean it that way at all. But now that I've been coming up in my job and now 10 years in, it's just something I've been seeing. And I think it's just really important to pass on. We're all crew members. We all need to be held to those standards. We're only as strong as our weakest person. And if you keep taking away those growing opportunities or fitness building opportunities from your weakest member, then it's just going to keep increasing that gap. And it's just going to reinforce to that person that they're not capable, even if it is subtle and not malintentioned. Are you mentoring new firefighters this way with how they perceive their minds and bodies and their expectations of themselves? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's funny for me to like tell that story of, oh, I thought I wasn't going to be held to those standards. And now I have super high standards, I guess, for my crew members and the squads I'm on. Whenever I'm a squad boss, whenever I'm leading my engine, I always want to be the engine that we're the go-to. We can hike up the highest hill and do the hardest work and just not be thought of as like typical engine crew that just wants to like drive around and check stuff. I do have that competitive nature and have those standards for my crew that they're super capable. And if we're called to go dig line all day, even if we're on an engine, that's what we're going to do because we can do it. We've trained for it. We know how to do that. And we want to be held to that standard. I have high standards and I think that's a good thing (laughs) for for all crew members (laughs) in fitness and in training. I hate when we would do trainings where we would just talk about things on some other crews instead of taking the time to pull the gear out or pull out the hose packs and do it, even though it's annoying to have to repack them. You can't practice that and then expect it to go smoothly when it actually matters. One of the things you described to me in your write-up was the difference between structure and wildland where there's no finish line with wildland firefighting. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's one thing that was really different to me is in structure, if you are extricating someone from a vehicle, once you've accomplished that task and then they're onto the hospital, task have a finite ending. In wildland, you may just keep doing the exact same things over and over again. And you just have to keep adjusting your expectations because 
the fire behavior shifts and then it jumps over a line that you've been prepping all day or this tree falls across the line that you didn't notice was on fire and now you have to completely change directions and change what you're doing. Really just reset your whole tone or mission of what fire you're on. For wildland, I really had to be okay with starting over and being really flexible and adapting to it. People can go insane in wildland if they expect it to just be the way it was because everything does change so much and you just can't let it bother you if you have to start over. Way different than any other job I've ever had. You described it as Sisyphean. Yeah. Pushing rocks up hills, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just crazy the amounts of work that can go into achieving a goal in wildland that can be wiped out within five minutes. That's happened to me on fires where there was a line we prepped with another crew for literally three days, a 50-foot saw cut, and then we burned it and everything was fine. And then the wind shifted 180 and a tiny sage caught on fire with an ember and then it took off across the entire landscape as far as you could see, then was like immediately on fire. And we were trying to catch it with the other crew and got retardant dumped on us. It was just an absolutely crazy day. I remember feeling really defeated. And then my boss was like, well, we're just going to have to go to that area tomorrow and keep on working. And it was just kind of like, yep, I guess that is just what you have to do. It's done. <laughs> that line's done. We have to readjust and one ridge over back to the same thing. So it goes. <laughs> Does it help to constantly remind yourself that you're battling mother nature? Yes. One thing about wildland that a lot of people don't understand, especially after seeing it mostly in news clips, is that even though we are wildland firefighters and we are professional forest firefighters, at its worst, when there's 60 mile an hour winds going on and how quickly they're covering ground, it's like asking people to step in front of a tornado or a tsunami and change its path. It's just impossible. There's no way to get offensive when the fire is like that. You just have to step back and draw a giant box and be defensive and get people out of the way. And so that's something I feel like is a huge misconception about what we are capable of, even with aircraft, when fires are moving at that pace and growing that quickly. That's something where even if you're six foot seven and 300 pounds, you feel pretty small. <laughs> yeah, it is humbling. <laughs> yeah, being out, especially coming from Colorado, I'm used to Aspen and lodgepoles. And here I'm in Idaho and huge timber, enormous white pines and firs. Even that alone, how big the old growth forest is here has been humbling just walking around in. Tell me about the Facebook group and the blog and what that experience has been like. So I made an Instagram account because of that. Facebook wants you to link the things. So I guess I don't really put a ton of effort into my Instagram and my Facebook. I didn't really find time for it. The website was my main focus. So I started the website in my time at the volunteer fire department. So many people wanted to do wildland because a lot of them were in their 20s and they thought it was a great job just like I did. I just found myself answering the exact same questions about how to get hired, how to be a good applicant, looking at people's resumes and trying to help them out and be their spirit guide to get hired. I'm just going to use my journalism skills that I never use and start a website and write it all down so then I can just put people in that direction and then reignite this love of writing that I felt like I've been missing out on and also have a really good resource that I can update. Because I just remember when I started, there's nothing on the internet. You really need someone in the job to help you, especially the more I started talking to other people in the department. Some women were just like, I could never pass the pack test or I could never do that job. And it just blew me away that people thought that that wasn't a job for them. That was another part of wanting to start the website. If there was some girl out there, even if it was just one who saw my picture and saw that they were also five feet tall and didn't think that they could do the job, that it was an option for them because I never saw myself represented in fire service. So just wanted to show other people that it is possible and it is an option for them if they want to. 
the real dichotomy for you that you don't want gender to be an issue, yet you want to be an inspiration for young girls growing up and realizing that they can do it too. Yeah, I do think that's like a hard thing to balance because I always want to just be seen as a crew member and not a woman. But then it is hard to also have this side of me where I do see women have similar struggles that I've had or had fellow female firefighters struggle with and like how to take them aside and give them a little more information without it feeling like I'm bringing gender to the forefront. It is hard. It's still something I think I struggle with trying to give female specific advice, but then also just novice wildland firefighter advice and how to kind of balance that. Is there anything that you would like women in the fire service currently and those striving to get into the fire service to know in general? Oh, man, there's so many things Um, that they shouldn't be discouraged. I've gotten a few emails recently from shorter, smaller women who just said, I have no idea that this was a possibility for me until I found your website. And I guess that's the stuff that makes me really, really happy. I love when anyone reaches out to me and has that. But I just want them to know that it doesn't matter how big you are. Wildland can be a superhero team. Like everyone has strengths and you can play to those strengths. So you need to find out what your strength is. If you're super detail oriented or if you're really excellent at scouting out line or if you're really good at walking around the woods, maybe you're really good at a saw, then you can develop those parts of yourself. Anyone can be better. You can always run faster or hike farther, dig line more efficiently, or just be a better mentor, learn up on subjects. So then you can help people understand fire behavior better or like weather. So that's something for all women. But I also just feel like women get in their own way. They don't want to be seen as being too direct. And I think that's something that's super important in fire is we have to be direct. We have to have really good communication. And a lot of that may to other people sound really stilted or monotone, or I guess just rude, but it's okay for women to tap into that side of themselves and find their direct voice and just speak up and be okay with confronting other people if there's a problem and feeling empowered, like you're capable and you can do this. If you're weak on something, I was weak on cutting hotline with a saw and that was something that I always felt really embarrassed about or like I wasn't good enough and then just sticking up for myself and wanting to get that experience and wanting to work on that. People will give you the opportunity if you speak up and tell them that's what you want to do. Instead of seeing it as a weakness, you can turn that into a training moment. And then something I was told by one of my superiors is think before you speak. Think about what you want to say before you say it on the radio. We all need to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that was a good life lesson for more than just speaking on the radio. It's one of the other best pieces of advice I ever got was volunteer for the special missions or the difficult tasks. Usually when someone's like, "Ugh, who wants to go hike up that hill to do this or that? That's usually like when you have some of the best fire experiences, because that's when you're like putting yourself out there. Special missions are one of those things where you never know what you're going to get. And generally, they're always worth it. Run into some cool animal or find an arrowhead or something. That was a great piece of advice. And maybe that's similar to just don't be comfortable, do the hard stuff, and you'll be rewarded, I suppose. Before you have time to think about it, just say yes. (laughs) Yeah. You wrote to me a little bit about how to handle situations that are a little confusing or confronting people when there's issues. Talk to me about that. Yeah. I guess a lot of what I just spoke to is aimed at all firefighters, but a lot of it can be aimed in that delicate balance between women and men. I just feel like women are really not encouraged to ask questions or question superiors or be direct when there are issues. We're taught to brush it under the rug and be okay with it. So it's huge to clarify if anything is confusing and just make sure you have that strong leader's intent with the task, purpose, and end state and know exactly why we're out there and what we're doing and what it's supposed to look like. And then if there's ever an issue on a crew, I just found that if people were 
being harsh to me or if they were maybe being rude. I haven't come across any crazy sexism or outright assault or degrading behavior, but definitely like a little bit of sexism. And so whenever people were doing that to me, I just found it's best just to call them out on it. This is not acceptable. You don't treat people like this, especially the people you're relying on right now to be out here in the woods where we all need to have this same team mentality so that we can work together and look out for each other. It's hugely important just to confront other people individually if there's a problem and not go above their heads. You should feel comfortable enough to try and solve it yourself and not go cry to other people about it. You mentioned how women should be helping each other more than they are seeing each other as competition. Yeah, that's something I think is hard too, because if you're the only woman, then you have no other women to be compared to in your crew. Whereas if there's two or three women on a crew, then I feel like there is sometimes this like weird, subtle competition between them of who's the fastest girl, who did this or who did that. And it's just like an unhealthy environment. Whereas the guys have that, but it's not to the same extreme when there's two or three women on a crew. And I always thought that was like a super weird dynamic sometimes. And I think that's unhealthy because then the women feel like pitted against each other. And so I just really value my female friendships in the fire service and wildland and structure. Even if we're not friends outside of fire, we share experiences and help each other be better firefighters. And I want to instill that in other women coming up of don't see each other as competition. See each other as other crew members who you want to be part of a team with and not have those negative behaviors. You referred to crews you've been on a few times as family. Do you think that still exists, that feeling of family of the fire service? I do. I really do. I may not get along with every single person on every single crew I've been with, but something I love about Wildland, and I guess structure to an extent, is it's people I would never necessarily seek out in my personal life to be friends with. And then when you're working towards a common goal, you just get so close being out in Wildland because we're together for so much of the summers and just being out there on the line working towards common goals and really trying circumstances sometimes. And the same with fire when you have really hard calls and then just at the end, knowing that you came together with your crew to like accomplish this task and like help someone. It's just something I've never, ever experienced in any other job I've had. Having that strong bond so quickly with other people, even if they're not necessarily friends outside of the fire service. So I absolutely think of us as a family. And I guess in a way, especially since I'm a little older and I got to fire a little later, like I was 26 when I started, a lot of the guys I worked with jokingly call me mom and stuff. (laughs) Sometimes it really bothers me, but now I try and take it more as a compliment as they recognize that I'm looking out for them. Even if they think of it as like a mom figure, it's me wanting them to know that I want them to be the best versions and I want to give them what they need to be a great firefighter. And I want to be a mentor to them. And if that's how they (laughs) recognize it with me or make sure even they have enough to eat. Being small, I don't eat as much as some of the giant guys. And so I'm always giving them my extra food. And so There's a lot of ways that we are a family, not just in our shared values, but just in how we like function together as a unit. And what has it been like for you becoming a supervisor? It was hard because like I said, I had a lot of fire experience really soon. And the second place I worked in Utah, they opened my firefighter one task book earlier than I thought I would get it open. They opened it my second year of fire, which I think a lot of people will think is too soon. But my boss thought that because I was older, I was in my late 20s and I had worked so many other jobs that I had different skills and I'd seen more fire than most first years. So he thought it would be okay. But I just remember just being thrown into it and feeling like such an imposter. Like I didn't know enough. I wasn't good enough. I didn't have enough experience. And that was really hard at first. But then I started analyzing what I was saying to people and what I was doing. And I felt like 
I was really wishy-washy or maybe was giving instructions not clearly or not really giving that strong leader's intent or even like not speaking loudly. I think that was something at first I would just speak really quiet not quite (laughs) the kind of leader I would ever want to be led by. And so once I realized that the energy I was putting out, no one respected my decisions and I wouldn't either if I was under my charge. It was very clear. I wasn't confident in what I was saying. So why would people want to be led by me? That was another emotional hurdle to get over. Even if I just have to make a decision and it may not be the right one, but I did it based on what made sense at the time, that's okay. And I think part of FIRE being ever-changing is that you make decisions and then a lot of the times they don't work and you just have to reevaluate. And that's just part of the job. That's okay in a lot of good ways just because you can make mistakes and try again, try something new. There's a lot of grace in that sometimes. And sometimes, obviously, things are going crazy and you just have to have good leadership. But then usually if I was in that situation as a trainee, then someone who was training me or with more experience would step in and just overrule me and then change the situation, which was great. So I felt like I had good trainers in that way. But yeah, being wishy-washy and not sure of myself and then changing my command presence to state things with purpose think before and have a clear leader's intent was a huge step. And I feel like that's something, obviously, everyone's still working on in their leadership journey and how to be a good leader. But that was the biggest light bulb moment I had when I was coming up. I love that you phrased it as still finding your command presence. Yeah. I mean, if we're not all still students of fire, why are we still on the job? There's always more to know and ways to be a better leader and ways to help your team and be a better mentor for sure. Are there traditions you feel we should carry forward and ones we should leave behind? I guess I love the fire family. I just think that's such a special thing we have that a lot of people don't really understand about our job. But more so for Wildland, there used to be this need-to-know mentality. You don't need to know all that's going on. We're not going to give you super clear instruction just because you just need to shut up and put your head down and follow in line. That's decreased immensely even in the 10 years I've been in Wildland. And there's just a lot more willingness and openness for letting people ask questions and let first years make observations and question why we're doing things. That's been a good change that I've seen. And I like that a lot. And I think that just makes people better firefighters. It lets them understand and grasp concepts quicker too, because if they understand the why behind what we're doing, then they can make better decisions and understand more versus just being told what to do and not given the reason behind it. Do you feel there's less of a tough guy mentality now? (laughs) Yeah, I would say that too. I feel like some crews I've been on and then I did some details with some other types of crews on a hotshot crew and people just can get so burnt out when they're treated like robots, like they don't have emotions or needs. It's like a really terrible thing to do to people. To not acknowledge that people have lives outside of fire is a really dangerous way to think of people as not whole, complex beings. Everyone has things that are going on at home, and we always do our best to put that aside to get a job done or do what we're trained to do. But things happen, and you can only do so much to put that stuff out of your mind. If you don't have a support system, if you're feeling depressed, especially in the off-season for Wildland, we go from needing each other and being part of this really intense family with these intense bonds and having so much purpose to then being set free in the winter to do whatever we want and have no structure. And I think that can be really hard for people, even in relationships. I know when I come home from a fire assignment, I just want it to be quiet. I don't want the radio on. I don't want the TV on. I just don't want to have that background noise 
stealing my attention. I can finally let my mind rest. And I think that was really hard for me to articulate to my husband more than anything and for him to understand why I needed that when I came home. Can't just dive right into catching up with him. I just need to decompress. And so, yeah, that is something the fire service in general is recognizing this huge emotional and physical ask they have of their workers and trying to give them more tools to take care of themselves and recognize when it's too much for people and not forcing them to become these robots, letting them be humans and knowing that they have resources if they need to talk to people or if things aren't going well at home and they need to maybe step back on the fire line because their head's just not in it. It's humbling. And I think that it's good that people are letting that become more of the norm instead of making fun of them or calling them weak. That's been a great change. How is mental health awareness and education being handled in Wildland? Is it formal or informal? It's starting to become more of like in our T-130, like when we come back, they are starting to put that into the curriculum of resources we have. This year, even, they brought in a wildland firefighter who turned into a counselor and was there for us to speak to and just kind of unload and process someone who understood our culture, but then also understood the particulars of what was going on and an objective person was kind of blown away by that. I think back on eight or nine years ago when I've had situations that were happening in the forest around my crew that weren't dealt with. It was just swept under the rug and no one really acknowledged the tolls that took on people. And there's no way they would have brought someone in, let alone someone who understood fire and how to deal with those emotions and how to help people. So that's been a change I've noticed in policy. And then also just trying to make it aware that Wildland firefighters aren't these superhuman beings. They still are sensitive people who are not immune to mental health struggles. And I know with statistics, I should probably have looked that up before, but there is a huge amount of suicides and alcoholism with people in fire service just because they do see so many things. And especially with wildland, just going from 100 to zero in the off season and really not knowing how to cope with that. Is a fitness regime something that happens more in the off-season? I would assume that when you're in-season fighting forest fires, that the work is workout enough. Yeah, I would say that's true to a point. If we're in the station, we always PT. That's part of our job. We are paid, I guess, to work out in the morning, same as like structured departments. Like you always get that time to work on your fitness. But then when we are fighting fires, yeah, no one's going for runs before they go out on the fire line, I guess. (laughs) Nothing like that. So yeah, I think we try and build a strong base to keep people from getting injured once it starts ramping up and we have to carry all the heavy stuff, dig line and be on our feet for 16 hour days. How has your routine shifted over the years? I've tried to focus more on core stuff and more strengthening. I think when I started, I thought I just needed to be this hiking machine and have all this upper body strength. And from restaurant work, especially with like baking and prep cooking, I've had a lot of lower back issues that I've been dealing with now that I'm in my late 30s (laughs) doing fire. So that's something I've been trying to focus more in the off season of just keeping up my core work and having that strong base. I'm really bad with using one side of my body and not the other. I'm completely the most non-ambidextrous person, I guess. So if I'm digging line, it's always one-sided and I notice those huge imbalances. And so that's something I've been actively trying to work on in the off-season now that I'm getting older. (laughs) What is your hope for the future of the fire service, especially with wildland? What does that look and feel like for you? There's some legislation that's getting talked about in our government right now, spearheaded by some ex-hotshots and federal firefighter higher-ups. 
trying to get money to support families through the off season and just make the pay structure a little bit more sustainable for these people who give all of their lives to this job where they barely see their families. They have to work super hard in the summers because we make all our money in overtime and hazard pay. And so just trying to make a more sustainable pay structure just so that people don't have to be stressed about getting a thousand hours of overtime in the summer to be able to live comfortably in the winter when they're laid off or having to collect unemployment. It's just such a strange system. So I'm hoping that that can be more matched up to the private sector where they're getting paid, especially like in California. A lot of private sectors are people are making six figures in fire jobs, whereas federal firefighters, a lot of people are paid below $13 an hour as base pay. So you can imagine that doesn't add up to a lot without hazard pay and overtime. It's just so hard to see these great firefighters drop out because they start having families and they can't get enough benefits and they just don't really have anything to fall back on if they get injured. And then they can't go out on the fires and make that overtime. So I'm really hopeful that that can change. And then I hope more women can see that this is a job for them if they want to. But more importantly, for anyone, I hope if those changes get made, then anyone can see this as a sustainable career and not just a summer job because we're losing so many qualified people just because they can't make it work financially anymore. Let's finish off with, are you a short-term, long-term goal kind of person? What's coming up for you in the next year or five years? Ooh, that's a good question. I guess I always like to have goals, even if they're short or long-term. So for me right now, there's a few qualifications that I'm working towards, and I'm really hoping to make that happen. I'm working on my firing boss and ICT4. So those are things that are important to me that I hopefully can get so I can move up in the career ladder <laughs> and get a higher GS level. But having COVID happen this past year has really made my goals a little less ambitious, if that makes sense. There's still things that are important to me, but it's just trying to be happy with everything that I have. I'm happily married. My husband and I just celebrated our fourth wedding anniversary last weekend, and we own our own house. And we have a crazy husky that runs around and is just a general nut pain in the neck. So just trying to focus on the small things. Not being able to travel and see friends and do things that we normally do has made me be appreciative for the life I've built here with my husband. Smaller things have become a little more important. Where can people find you? Are you still running the Facebook group and the blog? I'm not really in the Facebook group, unfortunately. People mostly find me through the blog. So my website is the fivefootfirefighter.com. I update the blog whenever I think of a new topic or whenever I get a lot of emails about one subject, I'll try and write a blog post on that just so people can see that first without having to contact me directly. So I try and update that as much as I can. I do get quite a few emails. I get at least three emails a week from people for specific questions just through the contact page of my website. But also on the website is just the minimum requirements of how to become a federal wildland firefighter, how the application process works, when that's open and when it closes, and then just what to expect. Because a lot of people, it's really hard to envision how their schedule will be and how much money they'll make. Yeah, those are all on the website. I have the Instagram as well, but I barely ever check that just because in the summer, I just find I don't really have much time. I, I try and answer all the emails. That's my main focus. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I've been listening to a lot of interviews you've done with other people, and I just love people's stories. That was a huge part of why I loved magazine journalism, because it's generally happy things or important things in people's lives, not the gloom and doom of the news. Enjoyable to listen to how other people got into fire, whether their families were doing it or if they just stumbled into it like me. Yeah, I love people's stories. So, Well, people are going to enjoy listening to your story, too. <laughs> Well, thanks.